those of you guys who don't know me, my name's Reed, and I'm one of the missional community leaders here at BC. And I, I feel really blessed to be able to, to teach this morning and to share with you guys what, what the Father has been teaching me personally through uh, this psalm and preparing this message. It's been really good for me, and so I'm excited to talk about it. And it's my hope and my prayer that it'll impact you guys in, in a similar way that it has impacted me. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. If you're using one of those Bibles under your chairs, it's on page 456. 456. should be about the middle of your Bible. And as, as you're turning there, I want to throw a rhetorical question at you guys to kind of think about a little bit. And the question is, do you love rules? Like, <laughs> Just, you know, thinking about it, when, when somebody gives you a, a rule that you're expected to follow, how do you initially, you know, feel about that? And I think, I think if we're honest, for most of us, we, you know, we might get a little bit frustrated. Some ob- objections might immediately rise to our minds like, well, you know, well, what's the point of that rule? Or... You know, who are you to tell me what to do? Or why can't I just do things my own way? And, and I want to be fair. I mean, I'm not saying that questioning rules is always a bad thing. I mean, if you look back at history, things like the Civil Rights Movement or the Reformation, right? Those came about because individuals were willing to question unjust rules. But still, I'm wondering, what is it that makes us initially, initially kind of chafe against the idea of anybody telling us what to do. I mean, certainly not all rules are wrong or unjust, right? Why is it that when we, when we tell a kid, like, hey, don't, don't touch that stove, it's hot, immediately that kid wants nothing more than to touch the stove, right? It's just like there, there's something in us, right? Something maybe, you know, deeper in our hearts that makes us despise being told what to do, even when that comes from the best of sources. And so when we read our passage this morning, David's going to show a, a really different attitude when it comes to rules. So let's, let's go ahead and read it together. Again, it's Psalm 19. I'm going to start in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for your word and that we get to read it and and look at it and, and hear what you have to say to us. Thank you for, like we just sang, uh, that you've revealed the mystery to us, that Jesus is the, the, the true and, and, and sure fulfillment of the law. And um, God, I just pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that you would uh, speak through me and that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would, you would soften our hearts to what you want to teach us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I... I I really, I've always liked this psalm, and as I've been studying it, I've, I've just like fallen in love with it. It's beautifully written. In fact, my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, has a book where he does reflections on the psalms, and he said of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So my, my aim this morning is to give you guys at least a little bit of a, a, a glimpse of the, the grandeur of this poem, and that you guys will fall in love with it too, and fall in love with God's word along with it. And so my main idea for the message this morning is that through his creation and his word, God reveals his glory and humbles his servants. Through his creation and his word, God reveals his glory and humbles his servants. And so let's go ahead and look at that first verse again. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Yeah, that's such a true statement. I mean, I'm sure many of us have had the experience of going outside and looking at the sky, maybe on a dark, cloudless night and seeing, you know, just the stars spread across the canopy of heaven and just thought to ourselves like, wow, right? God's awesome. When I was growing up, my parents' house had like a, we grew up outside of town, so we had a great view of the the western sky. And so we would see just beautiful sunsets with the the sun burning fire red right above the tree line, and then the, the clouds would be illuminated with this bright orange glow. And my mom would actually often quote this verse to us. She would say, the heavens declare the glory of God. And what, what is it about the beauty of the sky that, that brings us so much joy? Because this is, this is a little bit different than other things that bring us happiness. Like if, if someone gives us a compliment, we're happy about it because it's making much of us. Or if somebody likes us, uh, we, we like that because they're seeing something that's significant uh, about us. But the sky doesn't make much of us. In fact, the sky makes very little of us. It makes us feel really small. Uh, when we see God's creation, when we see his handiwork uh, across the sky, we are amazed at how much bigger it is than us. In verse 2, it says that you know, day to day and, and night to night, this, the sky is continuing to reveal God's glory. So the sky is, is always present, right, during the day and, and during the night. And in the first half of this psalm, David is employing a literary device called personification, right? So as an English teacher, I need to, I need to throw this in. Uh, he's giving, personification is giving human traits or actions to non-human things. So here, right, the sky's not literally declaring or proclaiming anything that can be audibly heard, but David here is poetically describing how creation reveals the majesty of his creator. In verse 3, it says, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So, in other words, what, what the sky has to proclaim about God's glory is seen and heard by all, because verse 4 tells us that their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So 
all the nations of the earth can, can look up at the sky and they can see God's glory. And when this is exactly what, what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, right? He says, like, ever since the, the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen in the things that have been made. In fact, Paul even quotes from this psalm, uh, verse 4 of this psalm in Romans 10, to kind of show this same idea, how all of the world can, has received at least some message of God's glory. So God has, he's revealed himself through all of creation, but the sky in particular wraps around the whole globe so that all people uh, can, can be able to relate to what David is saying here and can glorify God for the things he's made. And then David continues on with this vivid poetic imagery describing God as setting a tent for the sun in the sky, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. So here, here we see a combination of metaphor and similes being used to describe the sun's path across the sky. It's like after the night, it, as, as the sun rises, it's like it's emerging from a tent. And the sun is radiantly adorned, like a bridegroom, you know, smiling and running its course with joy. Notice here that you know God's creation isn't being described as being like slavishly burdened to what God is, has in store for it, right? Uh, the sun's not trying to resist God's will as it's being propelled across the sky. Just the opposite, right? God's creation is, is rejoicing in its creator, and, and the sun is running its course with glad submission to its creator's good design. Verse 6 concludes the first section of the poem, emphasizing the, the power and the universality of the sun. It says its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I have to be honest, when I, when I first read this verse, I was kind of like, well, really? Like, are there things maybe that are hidden from the heat? You know, I'm thinking of these like deep fissures in the ocean or these like Arctic caves. But then I actually thought about it more, and actually, even the coldest places on our earth would be colder if not for the sun. Scientists tell us that the center of the sun burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, which I just, I can't even like fathom that. And that, that heat warms our entire solar system. And the sun is actually a really great representation of God's glory because as we marvel at, at the power and the size of the sun, I mean, that just goes to show how much bigger is the creator, how much more powerful is the one who made the sun. I mean, get this. So if, if the sun were the size of a typical front door, the size of the earth would be the size of just a nickel. And the sun is just one star out of the billions that fill our night sky. So God created all this for his glory. And so let's, let's praise him for it. Let's see his glory in it. In verse 7 of the psalm, we see what might kind of seem like an odd change of subject. So he's talking about the glory of God in the sky and in the sun, and then David jumps to saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So it's kind of like, well, okay, where did, where did that come from? And, and when I began to look further into this, this poem, I was kind of like still confused by that. Like, how did we suddenly get here? And this actually isn't that foreign to me. As an English teacher, I grade a lot of student essays. And I'll be reading a paragraph. We're talking about one thing. And then it's just like, 
I don't know how we got here. You know, there, there's, there's no explanation. You know, somebody just copy and pasted that in there. They're trying to get their word count up, right? <laughs> but this is, David, thankfully, he's not one of my high school students, right? He, he's a master poet. He's intentional in his writing with what he's doing here. So verse 7 is marking a transition from what theologians call general revelation to something called special revelation. So general revelation is something that all of humanity has received. It's sometimes called natural revelation because it refers to knowledge about God or spiritual matters that we obtain through natural means. Things like we've been talking about, observing nature, observing what God has made. So through general revelation, God's kind of broadly revealing himself to all mankind. But special revelation is when God reveals more specific truths about himself. And he reveals it not naturally, but, but supernaturally, like through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving us his word. And so now, now we're turning from a discussion of God kind of commonly proclaiming himself to all mankind to him speaking particularly through his word. That's where we're, that's where we're going here. Uh, that's where David's taking us. He, he calls the law of the Lord perfect, which kind of brings us back to that question I started with, you know, do you love rules? How do, we, how do we feel about rules? And David here, he has a, a unique perspective. He loves God's rules. He says they revive the soul. He finds God's law refreshing and life-giving. And isn't that just kind of like the opposite of how we usually think? I mean, normally when we think about people giving rules, it's kind of like stifling. It's kind of like drains our life rather than giving it to us. But that, that's not what David is saying here. He says God's laws, they, they give us life. And why? Why does he find it so reviving? Well, let's keep reading. Second half of verse 7, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So God's word is trustworthy. It gives wisdom. Without God's instruction, if all we had was, was the general revelation, we can only kind of speculate about the true nature of, of who God is, who we are, what, what is going on with this world around us. We could see evidence of God's existence and his power in the sky, and so we would know something. But God hasn't just left us with general revelation. He has decisively and he has clearly revealed uh, who he is and who we are through his word, and, and that makes us wise. Verse 8 calls the precepts of the Lord right and that they rejoice the heart. And, you know, it's, just, it's, it's one thing to go along with rules or even to acknowledge their necessity. But David here is saying he rejoices in these rules uh, because these precepts are, are right. And there, there is, if you think about it, there is great joy in, in something being right. Okay, so or something, something working right according to its design. For example, uh, Shelby and I, for many months now in, in our apartment, have been dealing with the frustration of something not working right. Our Wi-Fi has just been sketchy <laughs> at best, okay? It would be like intermittent, and you know we would be able to connect to it one moment and then not the next, and even when we were connected to it, it was uh, very slow. But we had the interns over for dinner the other night, and Mitchell was telling us, well, if, if, if your router's you know, more than three years old, then it's probably not able to pick up the signals like it should and things like that. We're like, oh, okay, more than three years old. So we went over, we did the math on how old the router was, and ours was nine years old. So that was clearly the problem. And this week, we got a new router, 
And it's just been amazing. <laughs> like, we've had high-speed internet that is consistent, and we've just been, ex- Shelby and I have been raving to each other, like, look, I didn't even, like, open up my laptop. It was already connected. Like, we were just like, this is amazing, you know? And, and there, there is something, the point here is that there is something that's, that's joyful, that's exciting when something works the way that it's designed to work, right? And, and God's law gives us uh, the good and the right design for things to work because God made us, right? So he knows best how we should work, how we should live our lives. Next, David says that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So God's commandment, it's not tainted with evil at all. And it gives us new sight. Verse 9 says that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So fear here is not necessarily like a new subject, but he's talking about the fear of God demonstrated in properly following his law. And he says that it, it lasts forever. It endures. And this made me think of back when we were going through Isaiah. You know, Isaiah 40 talked about the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. The poem continues on. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I, I love that. God's, God's law isn't arbitrary. It's not like he was like deciding things and then, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make lying a, a vice or a virtue, so I'll just flip a coin and see, see how it ends up, right? I mean, telling the lie is wrong because it's not the truth. And, and God is the truth. His laws aren't randomly decided. They, they emanate from who he is, from his own character. Adultery is a sin because God is faithful to us. God's rules are the truth, and they are, they are perfectly righteous, and so can you, feel, can you feel as we're reading this, talking about it, David's like overspilling exuberance about God's word. I mean, he's just, he's raving about it and he just keeps going. Verse 10 says that God's rules are to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I love this. David, David is, is clinging to and he's rejoicing in God's word. He says, It's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's true. And now he's saying it's precious, more precious than gold. Not just a little bit of gold, but much gold. Not just any gold, but much fine gold. And he says it's sweet. David doesn't find God's law oppressive. He doesn't chafe against the idea of God telling him what to do. In fact, he sees God's rules as a delight, as sweeter than honey. And so the whole, the whole feeling of this psalm is just the light in God's creation and in his word. And he's not finished. Verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them, by God's laws, is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. And here at BC, we, we've often sung together those lyrics, and we will sing it uh, after I preached as well. You know, the, 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 the citizen song, I'm living in a land of death, which says so much more, then precious gold are your promises, my Lord. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, great reward. And those lyrics have been a, a recurring course of worship for me. And, you know, I've just, I've loved them and delighted in that. And when I became, began to study this psalm further, I realized something, that there, there is great reward if we follow God's law. There is the glorious reward of, like the song says, knowing you, my King, my Lord. And along with that, David wrote, the verse says, that it doesn't just say that reward will come like if you keep God's rules, but David actually says that in keeping them, there is great reward. 
So in other words, even in the act of, of following God's laws, like they are a reward in and of themselves. Because God's word is, like David has been saying, it's, it's revive, it gives reviving, it gives wisdom, it gives joy, it gives enlightenment, it gives righteousness. So it's a delight to keep his rules. Like the sun, which David says runs its course with joy, we can have joy in living according to our creator's good design. But why is it that, that so often we don't want to? Why is it that we, our natural bend seems to just like want to buck against any rules that, that people try and, and put on us, right? Or if we do follow them, we follow it begrudgingly, like as if we'd rather not have to follow these rules. And here is the point that I think we can really start to see the whole psalm together. David's response in these last three verses of the psalm demonstrate even more why he can love following God's rules. And that's because he's not proud. Like, pride is the thing in our hearts that makes us not like rules. We don't like rules because we don't like somebody telling us what to do. And we don't like somebody telling us what to do because we think that we know better. We think we don't need someone else telling us how we need to live our own lives. But David here, he recognizes it's not his own life. David calls himself God's servant. He knows his life belongs to his creator, and he knows that there's no shame in in serving a master that gives him true freedom. In verse 12, David gives the appropriate humble response. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So David here, he's talking about his own errors, right? As he's looking at, at God's word, he says, you know, what person is able to know all the things that they have done wrong? And it's, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. No one's able to, you know, be aware of all the little subtle sins that they commit on a daily basis. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else, right? The truth is we're usually best at fooling ourselves, at deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're better than we actually are. But David sees the truth, right? He knows that we are full of air, whether it be pride or selfishness or bitterness or judgment. We are more sinful than we ever dare believe. Many times we just, we trample over God's law without even realizing it. So that's why David asks God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. So he's, he's asking forgiveness for all these hidden sins, these subtle but, but pervasive struggles of the heart. And then in verse 13, he asks God to keep back your servant also, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So by presumptuous, David is meaning like going beyond what is permitted. Presumption speaks of this, this like bold and arrogant disregard for rules, as if saying like, I, I can disobey this if I want. So before he's talking about these hidden sins, these unintentional sins, now he's talking about intentional, walking over, going beyond God's law, right? And we know this, We know that there are times when we know we should do something or we know we shouldn't do something, and then we do it anyway. And David, he fears this, right? He he knows his own heart. He knows he's prone to wander. He's humble enough to realize that he's often not humble. So he's crying out to God. He says, don't let sin have dominion over me, right? Don't, don't Don't let me break your law, oh God. Like, keep me from, from giving in to this disobedience. And then David writes in the second half of the verse, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So after his prayer for forgiveness, David is forgiven so he can be declared 
blameless. And if God answers his prayer to keep him back from those presumptuous sins, he'll also be innocent of great transgression. And then in the final verse of the psalm, David humbly asks that in light of the law and then this poem that he's just composed, he says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And this is a a beautiful psalm, and, and I think it has a lot to teach us. And it has a lot to teach us about humility before God's law. Because, you know, while most of it focuses on, on God's word, let us not forget the, the ministry of God's creation in nature. I mean, the heavens really do declare the glory of God. Like, let's not miss that. And, and I mentioned before that looking out at the vastness of the universe can make us feel really, really small. And that's the right response. I think that's how God has designed it. Even the, the secular world realizes this. I mean, when I was, I was doing some research for this sermon, and I came across an article titled, uh, Seven Mind-Blowing Facts About the Universe to Put Your Ego in Check. Right? So even, even they realize that, you know, that there's something about the universe that, that you know, humbles us. The article included the statistic that our sun is only one in at least 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So I was like trying to wrap my mind about, you know, those huge numbers. And, and then scientists have calculated that there are at least 100 billion other galaxies, in addition to our galaxy, uh, in the observable universe. So, so therefore it can be confidently asserted that there are more stars in the observable universe than there are grains of sand if you combine all the different grains of sand from all the different beaches on the earth. And this is why famous astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said, if you really think that you're something big, you are in for some disappointment when you look around at what we've discovered about the universe. So we are very small, and the universe is so very big, but God is the one who created all of that, all of that uh, universe. And so may we see the glory in the things that he's made. May we recognize his power, his authority in these things. I mean, he is the one who is glorious, not us. He's the one that holds us all in his hands, not us. And so we can be humbled by what God has made. And then because of this humility, we can submit to God's law. We can recognize that we are just a, a small character in, in a bigger and greater story that God is weaving. And we can stop trying to like, write our own stories. Because that, that's really what we're doing when we're trying to you know, do our own thing or not follow God's law. We're saying, we think we know better than the creator of the universe. And this goes back all the way to the beginning of that story that God is, is weaving. Back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, they, they thought they knew better than God's rules. In fact, they only had one rule. They only had one rule. You have one job. Don't eat from that tree, right? God set them up in paradise. He gave them all that they needed. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He said, hey, just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. But they were proud. They, they thought they knew better. They listened to the snake. They thought God's law wasn't good. They, they thought that God was holding out on, him, on them, and you know, they didn't love his command. They didn't realize that his word is so much more precious and sweeter than any fruit that they could desire. In Psalm 19, David rejoices in the goodness of God's law because he realizes God's rules are the best thing for him. God didn't tell 
Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit because he was out to simply ruin their fun or because he was on some divine power trip. Like His rule against eating the fruit was for their own good and for the good of the world. Glad-hearted and, and grateful submission to God's law is directly contrary to our culture. 20th century philosopher Emma Goldman once called Christianity a straitjacket. And I feel, I feel like much in our day and age, we kind of have that, there might be some of that similar perception, right? To, to society that prizes this freedom and this personal autonomy above all other things, loving restrictions, that just seems crazy, right? That just seems completely foreign. At our men's fellowship last Friday, we ended up kind of talking about a, a topic similar to this. And, and Kyle reminded me of a really helpful analogy from Tim Keller. So Keller argues that true freedom doesn't mean the absence of any constraints. And, and to prove his point, he uses the example of a fish. He says, a fish is actually most free when it's constrained to the water. All right, so if this, free, if this fish is freed from the river, right, and set on the grass, well, then now its freedom to move around is greatly inhibited. In fact, its freedom to live is quickly going to be destroyed. So in, in the same way, Keller says that freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. So it's, it's God's word that gives us these restrictions, that helps us know what is our true nature and what is our creator's design for us. Another example of this in my own life can be seen actually on, on my phone. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us not to, to look on a woman with lust, right? To do so is to commit adultery in your heart. And then after that, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, then, then tear it out and, and throw it away. So what he's meaning by that is, is like the, the stakes are high when we're talking about sin. Whatever you need to do to keep yourself from doing sins, do that, right? Do whatever you need to do to keep yourself back from it. And so because I didn't want to fall into looking at inappropriate things on my phone, I, when I, back in my college years, I, I took off all the apps on my phone that gave me unfiltered access to the internet. And it could be said that in doing so, now I've, I've just limited my freedom, put myself in a box, and I'm eliminating my ability to, to not access the internet on my phone. But on the contrary, not having access to those things on my phone actually makes me feel truly free. I really legitimately love that restriction that there's nothing I can get to there. It, it keeps me back, like David says, from presumptuous sin. I want to be in God's law, right? And my pride could say, oh, you know, you, you don't need to do that. You, you know, you can keep that browser on your phone or whatever it is. But I, I'm thankful for wise mentors like here at BC that humbled me and, and that pointed me to the freedom, like true freedom, that can be found in removing those avenues that can keep us from following God's law. And, and the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is not that we should all brick our phones. The, the point is... God's rules are good, right? And, and we can rejoice in them. They, they, they save us from destroying ourselves. They save us from ourselves. And because of that, they're sweeter than honey and, and more precious than gold. As David meditated on God's creation and God's law, he saw that like the sun from which nothing is hidden from its heat, so God's word is, is all-piercing and able to expose hidden sin, which is why he asked God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. But 
How can can a perfect and a holy God forgive those who have transgressed his law? Well, here we must turn our eyes to the one who perfectly fulfilled all of God's commands. For the one who shines radiantly like the sun, for he was called the light of the world. The one who is the brighter bridegroom, who comes for his bride, the church. The one who not just perfectly obeyed God's word, but was said to be the word. This is the word that was in the beginning, the word that is with God, the word that is God. And this is the word through whom all things were made, including the the sun and the stars and the clouds and the moon that all proclaim his glory. And the crazy thing is that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus joyfully walked in line with God's design with every step he took. He loved his father's commands and he submitted himself to them. And even though we don't love God's commands and and haven't, like we, you know, we're like Adam in the garden. We, We think we must know better than God. And we have disobeyed the creator's good rules time and time again. But Jesus is not like us. When the second Adam was in the garden of Gethsemane, he didn't didn't give in or go against God's good design, but he submitted himself to the Father saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So we are not blameless. We are not innocent of great transgression. And we deserve to spend eternity separated from God because of that. But the good news is that Jesus was blameless. He had no hidden faults. And when he died on the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserve. The consequences that that, that we deserve, those were placed on him. The transgressions that that we did crossing the law, that punishment was placed on him on the cross. And if we place our faith in his sacrifice on our behalf, then his righteous life is credited to us. That's how David could be declared innocent here. That's how he could be forgiven of his sins It's because Jesus was innocent and he died on his behalf. And so if if you are here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, let me urge you to do so today, to do so this morning. If you've been holding out thinking like, "Ah, I don't know about all that and all those rules and stuff that, you know, I have to follow with Christianity, then I pray the Holy Spirit would, would open your eyes right now. Because the truth is that Following Christ isn't about following a bunch of rules. Yes, I've been, I've been talking about that. We can see that in the psalm. But the truth is, we've already blown it. right? We've already messed up time and time. Again, we haven't loved God or his commandments as we should. And we deserve hell as a result. But God, in his great love, sent Christ to live a perfect life and die in our place. And so, repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus, and then discover true freedom. Not not freedom from rules per se, but freedom from needing these rules to be the way that you work your way to God, to prove yourself to him. Because the truth is that those who trust in Christ will spend eternity with God. It's It's not based on our moral performance. It's based on Christ's, and he was perfect. So be free from the burden that it all relies on you following the rules. Allow your heart to be changed so that instead you want to follow those rules. You see them as sweet and delight in them. Jesus said, whoever whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. So it's in surrendering our lives to God's design that we find true life. So if, if you've never placed 
your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk with you after the service, or if there's people here that you know that can tell you more about what that looks like, I urge you to do that this morning. And for those of you who, who are here and have placed your faith in Christ, let me first encourage you to be humbled by God's glory revealed in creation. Allow the sky to help you to remember just how small we are, right? And how much we need God's guidance and need God's grace. And then praise God that he hasn't just given us nature to reveal himself, but he's given us his word in the Bible. And it's sweeter than honey and more precious than gold, and our wayward hearts desperately need it to keep us from destroying ourselves. And praise God for the word incarnate in the person and work of Christ, right? Because just like God's word Jesus is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true. All these things that, that David says of God's word is true of the word, of Jesus as well. And his perfect obedience to the law frees us from having to earn God's favor through the law. Now we are free to obey God's commandments, not to gain salvation, but because our salvation has already been purchased by Christ. Based on what Jesus has done, we've been declared innocence. We have been credited with his righteousness. So therefore, let us pray along with David in this psalm that God would forgive us and that he'd keep us from further sins. And may we recognize the, the, the preciousness of God's word. And may we, may we meditate on it, may we memorize it, may we exhort one another with it. It is a great gift to us. And may we see that in following God's commands, there is great, great reward. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I, I invite anybody who's place their trust in Christ to take some time to pray and then you can come up to the tables and, and return to your seat. And as, as you take it, I, I encourage you that, you know, may, may the bread remind you that although Jesus perfectly followed the law's demands, his body was broken for you. And may the juice remind you that although Jesus never transgressed any of God's commands, his blood was poured out for you. So may this be a, a tangible reminder for you of, of the realities of the gospel, and may, may the elements whet your appetite for more of God's word, which we desperately need, because our Savior reminded us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray.